his new book, Pathways of Theodicy, An Introduction to the Problem of Evil, published by Fortress Press in 2015, Mark S.M. Scott explores how people, largely within the Christian tradition, deal with the problem of evil and suffering. In clear prose, Scott both explains and critically examines ways Christians have dealt with these issues and also proposes ways that this conversation can move forward. For instance, by greater attention to biblical understandings of evil. This book would therefore be of interest both to specialists in this area and for general readership interested in learning more about theodicy or looking for a textbook that they can assign to under an undergraduate class. I hope you all enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Mark S.M. Scott about his new book, Pathways in Theodicy, An Introduction to the Problem of Evil. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Well, I wonder if you could start us off like we traditionally do by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'd love to. So I did my undergraduate education at McMaster University studying religious studies. Now, a lot of people, when they go to university, they don't know what they're going to major in, but few actually set out to major in religious studies. But from the beginning, I knew I wanted to study religion. And so my high school teacher actually told me, well, McMaster is the place to do that because I'm Canadian from Barrie, Ontario. So I went to McMaster and did my undergrad there, and then I went to Yale Divinity School and studied under Miroslav Wolf at Yale Divinity, doing a degree in Master of Arts in Religion, focusing on theology. And then I went to Harvard University, and I did my PhD there studying under Sarah Coakley. And after that, I had a lot of adventures. I did a postdoc at Harvard. I taught in Montreal for a year. I taught in Missouri for two years, and then just recently I spent three years at Villanova University as a postdoc, and now I'm at Thornhill University in Sudbury, Ontario, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies, and it's a busy time of life. I've been married for 16 years, and I have four wonderful children, so when I'm not teaching, I'm usually at home helping out, playing catch, and uh, just busy family life. Well, excellent. Con- congratulations. I'm always jealous of, of people with large families. <laughs> yeah, the, the rough and tumble of family life, the joyful chaos, is, as Marilyn Robinson says in Iliad. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> how did you come to write um, Pathways in Theodicy? So my first book, I wrote a book on the poem of evil. It was a revision of my doctoral dissertation. It's called Journey Back to God, Origin on the Palm of Evil, and it was published with Oxford University Press in 2012, and it just came out in paperback. And it's really a work of historical theology, and it, it gave kind of a careful, systematic analysis of Origin of Alexandria, who is an early Christian thinker, really important early Christian thinker, and his treatment of the Palm of Evil. And so, for my second book, I wanted to do a work of systematic theology, that expanded the discussion beyond a central figure, which is often how theodicy is done. It often focuses on a central figure like Augustine or Origen or a particular model in theodicy. And I wanted to expand the focus a little bit to look at the major models and motifs in Christian theodicy. And part of this grew out of my teaching because I taught a lot of courses on the problem of evil and there weren't a lot of great textbooks. And Although I used some, took some textbooks that were functional, I thought that I'd rather write one that would be useful for when I teach it, and that might be useful for others. So I designed it, I designed the book for scholars in philosophy, in theology, and religious studies who study the problem of evil in their research. But 
but also for students in universities and seminary courses on the problem of evil. And what I found is that there's a lot of general reader, readers as well who have read it and actually contact because a lot of people really wrestle and struggle with this question, why does God permit suffering? So, so I think it grew out of my research. Um, it was a natural follow-up to my first book on the problem of evil. And I actually envision a kind of the Odyssey trilogy where in the third book I'll give my own constructive perspective. So it came out of my research, out of my teaching, and even from an early stage in my education at McMaster, I took a course called God, Reason, and Suffering. And so from a very early stage in my educational formation, I was wrestling with this question and researching and, and looking for resources in the Christian intellectual tradition to engage the problem of evil. And I think as an introduction to the problem of evil, what I wanted to do was not really give my own particular constructive view of theodicy, but rather lay out the plurality of perspectives available in Christian thought. And that's why the title, the plural, the plural title is really important, because I don't argue that there's one particularly uh, particular correct theodicy, or only one way to do theodicy, but that there's a plurality of perspectives available. And so, I think what I try to do in the book is to reclaim the problem for Christian thought, because often what theologians do is they'll abdicate the problem to philosophy, and they do this because there's a fear that it's not a solvable problem, it's insuperable, so there's no reason to expend intellectual effort and energy trying to solve it, trying to solve something that's not solvable. And there's also this kind of ethical concern about the moral permissibility of engaging or explaining the problem of evil. Evil isn't something that we should explain. It's something that we should combat through social justice. So in the book, what I try to do is, you know, start with some methodological foundations and then go through some of these major models and do a kind of cost-benefit analysis of the respective strengths and weaknesses of each. So I wrote it primarily during my time at Villanova, when I was a postdoc, um, but the ideas for the book had been germinating in my teaching and my research long before that. Great. Excellent, excellent. For our our, re, our, our listeners, I just want to note that um, Mark is correct. This is really well written, um, for, especially for people who aren't familiar, even though I think a specialist will get a lot of it as, as well. And I know that because I'm not someone who's really good at understanding theology, and I could understand this. <laughs> well, that's good. Right, so. it, it achieved its desired goal of accessibility and apprehensibility to the non-specialist. That's good. Oh, yes, very much. And I hope our listeners who are teachers will, will consider um, adopting this as a textbook because it, it works really well, I think, in that way. Uh, but like I said, even a specialist can get something out of it. So I wonder, though, before we jump into the meat of the book, you, you dedicated this book to the memory of your nephew, Justin David Scott. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about him and why you dedicated it to him. Sure, I would love, I would love to. Thanks for asking. Justin was the eldest son of my brother Mike and, and his wife Mel. They have four boys. And he was my first nephew. He, um, he was born when I was a teenager. And so I remember that time because I remember feeling as a teenager, wow, I can't believe I'm now an uncle. And so it was, we always had a really special relationship and, and my identity as a proud uncle was really tied to him. And, and now I have uh, many nieces and nephews, which is wonderful, but it all began with Justin. And 
Last October, just after Thanksgiving, he died in a car accident. And he was only 20 years old, and it was just a real shock. Um, and it really plunged the entire family into a really deep grief. And, and this is occurring as I'm finishing the book and, and working on the proofs. And so I, I really felt strongly that I wanted to do something to honor him. Um, you know, he was a really fun-loving, kind of full-throttle young man. He loved his family. He especially loved his cousins. Um, he loved his friends and family. And he was a, he was a man of deep faith. And I think a couple things I remember about him is he really loved to hunt and he loved to play hockey. And some of my favorite memories include coming back to Canada after a semester of teaching or, or studying abroad and watching him play hockey for oral minor hockey. He was an excellent hockey player. He loved it. Um, so, you know, I learned a lot from him. I think he taught all his friends and family how to work hard, how to play hard, how to love hard. He was just a full tilt um, kind of guy. So I dedicate the book to him because I want to do something to honor him, to honor his life and memory, to serve as a tribute to him, and in a way kind of to keep him close as I teach on the poem of evil. And it occurred to me after the fact that a lot of the people reading the book will be students who are around 20 years old. So I, I wonder if it will also kind of in a secondary sense have make the pedagogical point about the stakes of the problem of evil and kind of illustrate it. It wasn't my intention, but, but, uh, but I've wondered afterwards how students will react to that when they see the picture. It's a beautiful picture of him. Actually, I had to fight with the publisher to get it in the, in the volume. <laughs> um, yeah. To get the picture, but it's a lovely picture. He's wearing his sunglasses and he, he's by a field and he has his work boots on and he had, he has that big scruffy beard, and so and so it makes me smile when I open and see it, and uh, and just is a way for me to um, make a tribute to, to him and his life. Right. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us, and um, and, and uh, my condolences, of course. Thanks. And, and that seems, I mean, it, it's it, uh, that's. I don't know how to say this exactly, but it, it does, like you say, brings home this problem of evil and, and suffering. Um, so I wonder then if, you know, thinking about that, you mentioned that he himself was someone who had a deep faith. Can you tell us why is this a problem? What is, why is, does, is there a, a problem for Christianity um, related to evil? What, um... Right. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I think the problem of evil is a problem for all world religions in different ways. And it begins with the particular doctrine of God that a particular religion subscribes to, if it has a doctrine of God. So in Christianity, of course, the problem of evil begins with this belief in God as omnipotent or all-powerful and benevolent or good. And so the problem of evil for Christianity consists in the logical tension, actually some would say logical contradiction, between God's existence Right, God conceived monotheistically as the maximal perfection of all the divine attributes and this reality of evil and suffering. So it's this Christian belief in God's fundamental goodness and power that seems at odds with the facts of experience, particularly the ubiquitous experience of innocent, unjust suffering. And all you have to do is pick up a newspaper or go online or watch the news and you'll see illustrations of this over and over and over again. School shootings, natural disasters, constantly resurface this question. But it, it begins with 
this Christian belief that God is good, and then that raises the question, well, if God is good, then why does evil occur in the first place? So it's both a, a question of theology, it's, it has this philosophical dimension, but as you mentioned, it's also experiential. People experience suffering, and that experience is at odds with their belief, and then they have to navigate that dissonance. Right, right. So, um, so what then is theodicy? So, theodicy, to give a kind of a preliminary definition, is the theological and philosophical attempt to explain suffering. It derives from the Greek words theos for God and nike for justice. So, the meaning of the word is really embedded. It's the attempt to vindicate or justify God for the existence of of evil. So, you know, to put it more simply, it's, it's, a, it's a way of trying to make sense of reality, a way of trying to explain in a world where bad things happen to good people. And this is done in any number of ways. And the term theodicy is unfamiliar to a lot of people. It seems very technical, something that belongs to scholars in ivory towers. But the, the task of theodicy, of theodicy is something that you see happen all the time, I think. And as people wrestle with, with this, they don't always have philosophical or theological training, but they are trying to reconcile their beliefs with their experience of evil, and they do this in, they do this in lots of creative ways and sometimes artistic ways as well. That's something I'm noticing more and more, that theodicy is not just something that happens in textbooks on the problem of evil or studies on the problem of evil, but it's something that happens in people's artistic expression and their attempts to try to give voice to how they feel about these experiences. So, and in this introduction, you talk about one attempt to deal with this uh, punishment theology. Can you tell us what that is and, and why it is that many people are not satisfied with it? Yeah, that's so important because I think punishment theodicy is the most familiar theodicy that people are aware of. Because they encounter it. They encounter it interpersonally. They encounter it in churches. And that's why I begin with it, because I think in the background of, of a lot of work in theodicy is a reaction to punishment theodicy. So punishment theodicy asserts that evil and suffering results from divine punishment for sin. And this particular explanation, I think, has been the default response in the history of Christianity. And it still holds currency for many. I think when someone personally experiences some sort of misfortune or witnesses misfortune, that's immediately the explanation they go to. You saw, you see this often after, say, a hurricane, um, after natural disasters, you'll, he you'll hear people say, well, this is a punishment for the sin of the people in this particular area. And so I think in public religious discourse, you find this. I think even privately and interpersonally, people turn to this explanation. And what I try to argue in the introduction, as I raise the issue of punishment theodicy, is not that punishment theodicy is entirely incorrect. It has biblical support, it has biblical examples, and I think some experiential resonance. But what I try to say is that it's not an exhaustive, universal explanation for suffering. It's not the only explanation. Yes, sometimes people suffer because of sin. I think we all have seen that, might have even experienced it. But not always. Not all suffering can be attributed to some sort of sinfulness. And I think more often than not, 
we can't know when suffering derives from sin and when it does not. Now, it's interesting, if you read the Gospels, if you read, for instance, John 9, Jesus confronts very explicitly a punishment theodicy, where the man born blind is assumed to have sinned himself or to have been the product of sinfulness that his parents sinned in some way. And Jesus directly refutes it. He directly refutes a kind of hardline punishment theodicy. And so I argue that while punishment theodicy has a place in Christian theodicy, it should not have a privileged place, and that it becomes actually theologically dangerous and misleading when it's misapplied, which often happens. Um, it can actually be, punishment theodicy can be very destructive intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. You hear lots of terrible stories about parents who lose a child or about diseases, and, and people will say to them, well, have you done something wrong, or this is punishment for something you did? And it's very destructive in a lot of ways. So I begin with punishment theodicy because it lurks in the background of a lot of the theodicies as a rock against which they have to build a new constructive response. So in the remainder of the book, after I do some sort of methodological, some methodological work, I explore these constructive alternatives to punishment theodicy to kind of come to the aid of theology in its attempt to explain the mystery of suffering without directly refuting or denying the uh, enduring place of punishment theodicy in the tradition. As the title indicates, Pathways in Theodicy, there's not just one way to think about or do a theodicy. There are multiple ways. Excellent. So um, in Chapter 1, you, you do something that I think is really uh, cool uh, because you say, well, we need to define evil. And I like that because I, you point out many people don't define it and then try and deal with this question, and I'm one of those people. <laughs> so it really helped that you define it. So I wonder if you could tell us, what is evil? That's a great question, and it's, it's one of the foundational questions of theodicy, which is how do we define evil? It's a word that gets thrown about in public discourse and political discourse. You still hear people talking about um, the axis of evil. You hear words like evildoers, almost always in the aftermath of a tragedy, someone will reflexively say, um, evil has hit our town. And so what, what is this language of evil? That's something that we have to wrestle with. Now, the standard definition of evil in the history of Christianity is that evil is the privation of the good or the absence of the good, which is an interesting definition. You see it in Origin of Alexandria. You see it in Augustine. So what it tries to say, that definition, is that God does not create evil. Rather, evil arises as the absence or deviation or corruption of an original created goodness. And so what they say is that in that sense, evil has no independent ontological or metaphysical existence. It is parasitic on the goodness of creation. And they, to try to illustrate this very abstract paradoxical concept, they use images from the material world, such as um, darkness, right? Darkness doesn't have its own ontological reality. It's the absence of light or, or silence. Silence is the absence of sound. So this is really interesting paradoxical language of, the, of evil being the lack of something, the perversion of something. And this ontological language, while it's helpful in a lot of ways in clarifying the status of evil, it has some problems. It, it's difficult to conceptualize 
exactly how evil can and cannot exist. That's an enduring problem. It also has a philosophical problem, which is if God doesn't create evil directly, how can it possibly exist if God is the origin of all reality? And so there's this question of the ontology of evil, whether it's a coherent concept, and then the question of origins, or how do you explain the reality of an evil in, in a world that was created by a good God? Where could it come in the first place? How could it arise in the first place, even as a possibility? But then there's this other dimension, this more kind of existential dimension, where the language of evil as privation seems remote, experientially remote. Evil doesn't feel like the privation to a person who's been beaten or denied justice or who's experienced a loss or who's undergoing chemotherapy. It doesn't feel like the privation. It feels devastatingly real. So how do we capture that in the language of evil? And how do we differentiate evil from, say, badness, right? What, at what point does something evolve from being really bad to being evil? So these are the kind of conceptual problems that, that I think theologians and philosophers need to continue to wrestle with. And what I try to do is to say, when the Bible talks about evil, it doesn't really use the language of privation, and it also doesn't have one singular definition of evil. It employs multiple definitions, multiple concepts that intersect and overlap in, in interesting ways. Evil as chaos that you can see in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 that you can see in the book of Job. Evil as sin, evil as Satan, and evil as suffering are four categories you see in different ways in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament. And so I think these categories capture different facets of the reality of evil, and it would be interesting for theologians to try to then integrate this in their theological reflections on evil. So it's a contested category. It's fraught with philosophical and theological difficulties. And often what happens is, in discussions on the problem of evil, the biblical tradition is bypassed entirely. So I try to bring in some concepts and images of evil from the Bible and then problematize them in, in different ways. So it's, it's a... It's an important question, a foundational question, and there are multiple ways that you can analyze it. Right, and that's one thing I, I really like about your, your book is this kind of attention to the plurality. And that guy to go to the next issue, because you don't just say there's one problem of evil, you say there's multiple problems of evil. Uh, could you tell us what they are? Sure, yeah. There's, this, this is an insight that has gained uh, widespread, widespread support and philosophy of religion and theology, and a lot of it can be traced back to Marilyn McCord Adams and her work in, in theodicy. And so typically, theodicy has been, and the problem of evil, has been understood as kind of a, a logical tension between these three different items, God's goodness, God's omnipotence, and evil. It's called the trilemma. And that's typically how it's been framed. It's the question of how to logically reconcile the reality of evil with God's existence conceived of monotheistically in these ways. Um, but what Marilyn McCord Adams and many other philosophers and theologians have pointed out recently in recent work in theodicy is that that's not the only way to configure the problem. You can talk about the problem of evil as this incompatible or inconsistent triad. That's one way. It's kind of a logical puzzle. But there's also 
practical way of looking at, at it evidentially, where you look at it not as a not as a mathematical formula that you have to find your way out of, but as a question of evidence. Right? What is the evidence? Does it support? Maybe not absolutely conclusive, uh, conclusively, but does the preponderance of the evidence suggest the existence of God, the possibility of the existence of God, one way or another? So there's the logical formulation of the problem vehicle. There's the evidential that looks at uh, looks at the evidence and and weighs it. There's also the ways of looking at the problem of evil from a social perspective. What are the social evils, and how do we interpret that philosophically and ethically and theologically? There's also people in their personal engagements with evil. How do we interpret that? Um, many others, like the pastoral, you know, a clergy person is really on the front lines of the problem of evil in an experiential sense, in the sense that they are um, chaplains at war or in hospitals or in hospitals. Uh, hospice situations where people are dying and they're constantly being asked this question why is god allowing the suffering my suffering the suffering of a loved one the suffering around us and so that's a different way of formulating the problem and i think what the insight uh, tells us is that the way that we formulate the problem is going to really dictate the kind of theodicies that we employ and also to move beyond just the logical problem of evil shows us that there are all sorts of different ways that we have to engage the problem um, as intellectuals and for many as clergy. And I think what happens is people get focused on the logical the logical trilemma without realizing that in the outside world they're not most people when they think about the problem of evil aren't thinking about it as a philosophical problem. They're thinking about it as a personal problem or as a spiritual problem. And so Recent work in theodicy has really tried to bridge the gap, but you know, but the term itself, problem of evil, creates its own difficulties because the term problem suggests that there's a counterpart, right, a solution. And and part of the thing is with the problem of evil is that there's no one single solution. It doesn't really admit of solutions. It more invites and elicits responses. And I think it's or a person who does theodicy to admit at the outset that they can't provide a definitive, exhaustive solution to the problem, however they configure it, but they can only give responses utilizing the resources from their own tradition to try to speak to this problem um, that constantly recurs. Right, and in terms of, of dealing with this problem, in Chapter 2, you talk about the need to redefine theodicy. So I, I wonder if you could tell us, why do you think it needs to be re redefined, and how should it be redefined? Yeah, typically in, in classic traditional theodicy, the task of theodicy, to use the words of Milton, is to justify the ways of God to man. And this attempt of vindication, logical vindication or justification for God, and for God's existence in light of the reality of evil, is really linked exclusively to the triad of evil, to the logical problem. So the traditional classic way of doing theodicy, this vindication or justification of divine providence, is linked with the logical problem of evil. But once you expand the problem of evil to include other ways of configuring the problem, you have to expand the concept of theodicy that engages that problem. So theodicy is not just the attempt to 
diffuse the combustible triad of evil, divine goodness, and divine omnipotence, but rather it's an attempt more broadly to explain human encounters with suffering and to harmonize um, those worldviews that people have with those experiences. So the expansion allows for different ways of doing theodicy in different and new contexts beyond a very narrow, uh, primarily philosophical way. So it's not, you know, it's, it's just as the problem of evil expands beyond the logical problem, so theodicy has to expand beyond the classic philosophical attempt to break out of this logical bind of the trilemma. And so when I think of theodicy, I think of theodicy as the attempt to make sense of suffering. I mean, I, I, I really reduce it to a basic intellectual move. It's an intellectual task. But what it's trying to do is make sense of it, utilizing the particular philosophical and theological resources and apparatus that people have that they come to the question with. So that so when I think of theodicy, that's how I do define it more, the attempt to explain or make sense of suffering. Another way of talking about it is the, the attempt to restore cosmic coherence, right? That evil burst the bubbles that we inhabit, and how, how does the Odyssey try to put it back together again? Right, well, speaking as a historian, this is one thing I really like about your book, is then again, making it personal, making it um, deal with the details of people's everyday life, putting it into context. Right, and that's been a, a critique of theodicy in the past, that it's been overly abstract, that it has neglected to take account of people's lived experience. And so one thing I wanted to do in the book as a corrective is to make sure I always kept the personal, kept the stories in view as a corrective so that didn't just become a sanitized, abstract problem for philosophers and theologians sitting comfortably at their desk. And I think... I think that's an important corrective that all theodicists and people working on theodicy need, need to keep in mind that when you're talking about the problem of evil, you're talking about a question that impacts people at a deep, visceral, and spiritual level. When I teach on the problem of evil, for instance, there's hardly a time I taught on the problem of evil where a student hasn't come up to me after the course and said, I took this course because... My parents died on 9-11. They were, one of, they were in the Twin Towers. Or my boyfriend committed suicide. Or um, my, my parents died. Every time I teach the class, people come up to me and tell me their personal experience of suffering that led them to begin asking these questions, which teaches us, I think, that it's not just an academic scholarly question. It's a deeply human question about the nature of existence. So I wonder then if you could, in chapter three, you deal with one of the most popular Christian kind of theodicies, the free will defense. I wonder if you could tell us what is that? Sure. The free will defense argues, so each theodicy tries to give a morally sufficient reason why God permits evil. That's the, the basic move. The explanation is to give a morally sufficient reason, a reason that we can all kind of agree on that, that makes sense why God allows it. And what the free will defense does is to say that that morally sufficient reason why evil exists is because God endowed rational creation with free will, which they misused and continue to misuse. And what that does, what that move allows, is to make the argument that God does not create evil, angels and humans do. And this type of argument is typified by Augustine in the ancient world by Alvin Plantinga in contemporary philosophy of religion, 
and it draws from Genesis 1 to 3 heavily. And a free will defense tries to say that freedom is such a great good and so constitutive to human existence and human flourishing that it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost that freedom exacts, which is the pain and suffering that occurs when people misuse it, both cosmically in the fall of the devil in classic Christian parlance, and personally when when people in our lives, when people historically have used their freedom to do all sorts of horrendous things. And so it's been it's been an important um, one of the most central theodicies, I think, in Christian thought, um, the free will defense. And a lot of people reflexively turn to it, uh, much like they turn to the punishment theodicy, as a basic explanation from a Christian viewpoint why God allows evil. Uh, you can distill it. Why does God allow evil? Because God created us free. So there's a kind of simplicity, and there's an intuitive resonance. I think people look around them and they say, yeah, people... People have a way of um, ruining their lives and ruining the lives of those around them. So there's an intuitive plausibility to it as well. Um, but, of course, there are lots of objections to it. And what I try to do when I look at each major model and motif in theodicy is to explore what are the strengths and what are, what are the weaknesses of each. Right, excellent. So I wonder if you could tell us, how does it move from just being a defense to actually being a full-blown theodicy? Right, that's a subtle distinction. It's an important one. A free will defense forwards this argument that evil exists because God created free will. The free will defense forwards this argument as a possibility, right? As as a, a reasonable, plausible explanation. While a free will theodicy forwards it as an explanation. So it's a subtle difference. They're using the same basic argument. But in one mode, it's speaking in the, you could say, subjunctive mode of free will defense, whereas the free will theodicy is speaking in the indicative. So it's kind of the difference between a possible suggestion, a plausible reason, versus a positive assertion that this is why God allows evil. But for both, the question is, God off the hook. Um, for some, yes. But for others, it's insufficient. So in, in chapter four, you look at kind of a, a challenge to this, um, the John Hick's challenge. What is his problem with the free will defense? Yeah, John Hick, he's an important contemporary philosopher of religion, and he begins his theodicy by refuting the free will defense. And he, he has three primary reasons for refuting it. The first is scientific. He says the free will defense, scientifically and cosmologically, is based on an outmoded worldview. And so for those reasons alone, it no longer has heuristic value. Another is intellectual. He thinks that it doesn't actually explain why God would allow evil, because the creation of free will doesn't explain why God couldn't create a freedom that maybe didn't allow so much evil and suffering. And then morally, he thinks that the idea that God would punish all humanity for all time because of the sins of the progenitors he thinks that's disproportionate. He thinks that's outrageous. And so so he denies the free will defense for scientific, intellectual, moral reasons, but in many ways he kind of reinscribes it in his theodicy. So what he does is after he refutes it, what he does is propose a different model for theodicy. And it's called the soul-making theodicy, which argues that God permits suffering because suffering is necessary to facilitate a moral 
intellectual and spiritual growth. That's his main argument. No pain, no gain. That's the argument. Without obstacles, dangers, and setbacks, we would never be able to reach our full potential, which is divine likeness. And, and he says that the soul-making process occurs throughout the entirety of a person's lifetime, but it actually extends beyond it to the afterlife. And it also presupposes, in his mind, universalism, that only if the soul-making process ultimately is effective in bringing all of creation from all time into eternal beatitude or heaven, can you justify all of the horrendous evils in human history? And so he's a universalist, uh, which is a term for the argument that all people are ultimately redeemed or saved. Um, but it's interesting when you think of the soul-making theology, it's been very influential. And when I teach it, students uh, are really drawn to it, are drawn to the soul-making theodicy. But of course, there are lots of criticisms to it, and I think one of them is uh, John Roth, who, who leveled this kind of devastating critique where he said that John Hicks sees the room too much as a schoolroom when it is more like a dangerous alley. And that's, that's an important critique. And also the concept of universalism is not the, and Hick admits this, not the majority report in the Christian tradition and has a lot of difficulties when you're subjecting it to analysis, theological and scriptural analysis. So again, there's always a cost-benefit analysis, but there's also with the soul-making theodicy this intuitive plausibility. We see in our own life how we often grow when we suffer. You can extend that to, say, physical training, that you get in better shape when you push yourself. Um, think about exams. You know, Hick would say, if you didn't assign papers and exams for your students, would they work as hard? Would they grow? Probably not. So there's an intuitive plausibility to it uh, that a lot of people are, are drawn to, and this recognition that suffering isn't always a punishment, that suffering um, has constructive value, in Hick's opinion, this, this idea of growth, and it helps us grow. Right. Um, I wonder, though, how is this, I thought some earlier Christian thinkers thought in these terms, how is Hick different from that? From, from which? Uh, from earlier Christian thinkers. Uh, weren't there some sure. Christian thinkers who thought in terms of, that we develop through suffering? Sure, yeah, um, so Hick and his soul-making theodicy really relies on Irenaeus, and actually he calls his, his theodicy an Irenaean type of theodicy. But in an article that I wrote, I argue that he doesn't really justify that attribution, and that Irenaeus in, in many ways is ill-suited to be the patron saint of soul-making theodicy, especially because Irenaeus believes in a kind of traditional view of the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the afterlife. But what I argue is that Origin of Alexandria, who I wrote my first book on, is a is a better patron saint because he's theologically more speculative. He has a more expansive view of the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the end or eschatology. So it's interesting. I was corresponding with John Hick near the end of his life, and I, and I brought this up, that, that Origin really is well-suited to soul-making, and he agreed. He thought he thought that Origen would make a great patron saint, but I think he just, he was a philosopher of religion, not a patristic scholar, so I just think he utilized Irenaeus selectively, and and uh, in some ways, I think, unjustifiably, but I think Origen, if you were to construct a soul-making theodicy, 
diachronically who's into major figures in the Christian tradition, I think Origen would be a better starting point. Excellent. So I wonder if you you continued on then and you told us about several more theodicies. Um, and in chapter five, you look at this thing called process theology. Or, I'm sorry, process theodicy. Could you tell us what that is? Sure. Process theodicy builds off of the work of Alfred North Whitehead, and it builds off the philosophical system of um, process thought. And process thought says that all reality is in flux, that the world consists of processes and motions, not substances. And it argues that God directs reality, the evolutionary growth of reality, but does not determine it. And for the purposes of theodicy, which is developed, process theodicy is developed primarily by David Ray Griffin, process theodicy denies divine omnipotence. That's its basic move. So when you divine, when you deny divine omnipotence, you diffuse or neutralize the trilemma or the, the syllogistic problem of evil. So what it argues, process theodicy, is that God guides the evolutionary process to higher states, but it cannot guarantee the ultimate felicity of the world and of humanity. And because of that, what Griffin and others say is that humanity has to work in conjunction with God to reach the omega point where we maximize human freedom, human flourishing, human creativity. So we can't just rely passively on God. Instead, we have to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and get involved because God needs our help because God's not omnipotent. So we have to work together. And again, there's a, a cost-benefit analysis when you think about this theodicy. For some, this theodicy is insufficiently Christian to... Um, to even constitute the Christian theodicy. John Roth says that the problem with with Griffin's God is that he's too small, and it puts God on a leash, and this God is not worthy of worship because Christians typically believe in a God who helps them out of the ditch, not a God who's stuck in the ditch with them. Um, so the process, process theodicy, the strength of it is that it's really trying to integrate contemporary science like soul-making theodicy and trying to incorporate new metaphysics to thinking about the problem. So it's very creative, um, and, it's, and technically it solves the problem. So for a theodicist, that's very exciting. But at what cost is the question of what cost. Right. So, And it's interesting because in one sense there's this concern that process theodicy is not Christian enough, and then you look at right. cruciform theodicy, which is, in a sense, very, very Christian. Right. That's why I turn, I turn next to... Um, to cruciform, because that draws from the center of Christian thought, right, the cross. And it looks to the cross for insight into the meaning of evil and suffering. And probably the major theorists for this are Jürgen Moltmann and Marilyn McCord Adams, specifically Moltmann's The Crucified God. And so for Moltmann and, and Adams and others who follow this vein, the cross signifies Christ's redemptive work through his life and death. And then they ask, so what's the significance of the cross for our experience of evil and suffering. And the ideas that emerge is that are include that God suffers with humanity, that God suffers in solidarity with victims, with those who undergo horrendous evils. And so that means that humans are not alone or isolated in their suffering, and that opens new possibilities for theodicy, for thinking about God's presence with those who suffer, and also following a lot of um, work that Marilyn McCord Adams does, the redemptive possibilities of suffering 
open up new avenues for thinking about suffering, not as punishment, but as an opportunity to stand in solidarity with Christ. And, and she really develops these ideas in dialogue with Goldman. And for a lot of people, it's an it's a exciting prospect to think about suffering not as an instance of punishment or an instance or a consequence of freedom or an opportunity to grow or just a reality of a God who can't help it, but to think about suffering as an opportunity to participate in the suffering of Christ. And, and Marilyn McCord Adams says something pretty striking. She says from the retrospectively, she says from the perspective of heavenly beatitude, we will not wish away these moments of horrendous evil. Evils, she defines horrendous evils as evils that make you question whether your life as a whole is worth living. And she's saying from the perspective of the beatific vision or the face-to-face encounter with God, we wouldn't wish those moments away because we will see those moments as points of intense identification with Christ. Um, so it's a really provocative, it's not a full-fledged theodicy, it's, it's more of a motif than a, a model because it doesn't technically answer all the questions of what is evil, what is the problem of evil, what is the ontological status of evil, it doesn't answer all of that, but it gives a particular perspective and grounding for theodicy that has been enormously influential, and I think in recent Christian theological work in theodicy, this has been on the ascendancy, this kind of cruciform Christological theodicy is, I think, becoming really more mainstream. Right now, now though, some people would, um, from a traditional Christian perspective, would, would would question that. Though, I mean, in terms of like uh, this issue of God's suffering, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a it's a controversial topic because the doctrine of divine impassibility, or the doctrine that God does not suffer, has been deeply entrenched in the Christian theological tradition. And Jürgen Boltman and others have advocated the doctrine of divine passibility or that God suffers. And this, in a way, is not a new argument in the sense that in the um, earlier centuries, Christians were debating the degree to which and how um, God suffers in Christ. And so, on the one hand, it's controversial because it goes against classic theism and the belief in divine impassibility and immutability. On the other hand, what some theologians like Boltman would say is that this very idea of impassibility is not a Christian concept. It's a philosophical or platonic concept that we need not retain in the Christian tradition. When you look at the Bible, you see that God grieves, God gets angry, and so that we should reclaim these biblical concepts of God who suffers in solidarity with humanity, because Boltman's point is that to love is to suffer. And he thinks that, he says that God's suffering for humanity, uh, by humanity, and with humanity is the highest representation of divine love. And so Boltman thinks, and others think that love requires suffering. And certainly that's true in the human realm. If you love somebody, you become vulnerable, you open yourself up to heartache for any number of reasons. But the question that the passibilist would bring is, um, is that not a kind of anthropomorphic or making God seem human way of thinking about God? Maybe God's love is love in action, love that redeems humanity, that intervenes, not love that cries or experiences kind of human emotions in the same way. So it's, that's an ongoing debate that's in the background of cruciform theodicy for sure.
So there's um, thank you for that. Now there's some people who just say let's let's just get rid of all this. There's people who are anti theodicy. I yeah, wonder if you could could tell us what that is and, and why some people support it. Yeah, I like that. So there's so I put this after going through the some of the major models and motifs and say, listen, some people look at all this and say let's just trash it. Let's just pretty, this is a waste of time. But there's actually interesting ways of doing anti theodicy. There's an atheistic way of doing anti-theodicy where you reject theodicy because you think it's intellectually incoherent. You think that um, theodicy, theodicists cannot solve the problem of evil, and because of that, you're against theodicy because it's not successful. But there's also a theistic anti-theodicy, so those people that retain their theism or Christian faith in this case, and they're Christians, but they reject theodicy, and usually they reject it for intellectual and moral reasons. Intellectually, they say the problem of evil is insuperable, so they would agree with the atheists, um, atheist anti-theodicists. They say it's insuperable, it's fruitless, it's, it's not something we can solve. And morally, they say it's problematic because theodicy tends to justify evil rather than confront it or ameliorate it or improve the, the condition of the world. So there's this kind of political, ethical critique in the background that Christians shouldn't be in the business of explaining evil, they should be in the business of eliminating. And I think anti-theodicy is really important in discussions about theodicy because it highlights um, it highlights the insufficiency of theodicy to explain all of the different nuances of the problem. And I think it's helpful in chastening theodicy against kind of tendencies it has towards acceptation. By keeping the focus on the experience of suffering and the ethical imperative to improve some improve suffering and the world, not simply to explain the suffering of the world. And so anti-theodicy is an important stream in Christian discourse on the problem of evil. It's a rejection of theodicy as um, a distraction, as fruitless. And I think what's really important about it is this um, concentration on the lived experience of suffering and the pressures that that puts on theorists in developing theodicy. So it's really important. So, I, and I like how then in the, the following chapter, though, you, you, you get, you know, you've been talking about theodicy. You, now you talk about anti-theodicy. Then you talk about going beyond theodicy. <laughs> and, and there you're really looking at how the, um, the afterlife and the concept of mystery, um, their roles in Christian attempts to deal with the problem of evil. I, I wonder if you could tell us how those concepts are kind of utilized. Sure. So I want to end by pointing out that almost all theodicies appeal to the afterlife in some way, although they vary widely how they do it. I mean, you see the concept of the afterlife is very different in process theodicy. Griffin initially left it out, then only after really vociferous critique included uh, a concept of the afterlife, which is indeterminate because, of course, without an omnipotent God, you can't make any guarantees. Um, soul-making theodicy has a universalist eschatology that's very different than a free-will theodicy that tends to believe in a heaven and hell. So they all employ some sort of eschatology or, or appeal to the afterlife as actually the linchpin, usually, of their theodicy. Um, and each of them is different. You know, some, as I said, deny the reality of hell is incompatible with divine love. Some affirm it as necessary for the concept of divine justice and the integrity of human freedom. But at the core... I think when you're thinking about theodicy, faith in the reality of heaven brings a lot of comfort and hope to many people in the midst of suffering, and it, and it helps to give it 
meaning. But the philosophical theological question is, is this simply a crutch? Is this simply pie in the sky and the sweet by and by? Or does it function instrumentally in the task of theodicy? How can we prove it and how can we use it? Um, and so there are lots of different ways of, of approaching the concept of eschatology. But what I think theodicy has to admit at the outset is that we're speculating. Because when you're talking about the afterlife, what kind of data do we have? You can talk about out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, and at the popular level, people love books like Heaven is for Real and, and other experiences of people who go to the afterlife. But theologically, that's uh, dubious, difficult evidence to use in establishing an eschatology. So I think what's important is to say that however a theodicy operates, it will appeal to an eschatology in some way. And how do we subject that to rigorous analysis? And what it also does is help, it appeals to the afterlife, help us to realize that we don't have the full, the full picture, that the pieces of the puzzle are still missing. There's still variables in this theodical equation that have not been disclosed. And because of that, theodicy, I think, has to always be provisional, tentative, and incomplete. But that doesn't make it unnecessary, unproductive. It makes it a mystery. So the question is, how do you talk about mystery in a way that doesn't seem to be evasive intellectually, in a way that doesn't seem to be cheating, right? The appeal to the afterlife, people can say, listen, theodicy employs reason right up until the point that reason doesn't work anymore, and then they abandon it. That's cheating. And so how does Christianity reclaim this concept of mystery and learn to talk about truths that are beyond or uh, beyond rational discourse and so it's it's a short chapter i intended it to be a short chapter because so much of it is wrapped in history excellent but i like that you you point to that because that does help us to kind of understand better and show that the the internal consistency of some of these ideas even though some people may say well you're cheating uh, th there's internal consistency there um yeah and, and see with christianity it's not when christianity does the odyssey it's not in the kind of Kantian way of the tribunal of reason alone. Christianity doesn't simply use reason. It uses tradition. It uses revelation. And so Christianity will necessarily do theodicy a little differently. It will um, transcend reason at some point. And so it has to do it in a way that has an internal consistency or cogency. And, and the task of theodicist, theodicy and theodicists is to, is to analyze this in a way that shows how the appeal to the afterlife inflects what happens before in the uh, morally sufficient reason that they give at the heart of the Odyssey. So it shows how it's, you know, the, it, it really shapes um, how the Odyssey works. It's that important. So I wonder then if um, now you can move us on to the conclusion, because as you said before, this isn't going to be the, the end. And so in the conclusion, you don't say, well, this is it. You say, uh, these are some ways we can move the conversation forward. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it was important methodologically for me to say that in Pathways in Theodicy, I'm not advocating for my own viewpoint, my own constructive perspective. I'm not advocating for a particular model or motif. I'm simply trying to lay out some of these landmarks in theodicy and to demonstrate how each one has strengths and weaknesses that, that you have to consider. And so I always meant it to stimulate dialogue, not to foreclose it by saying, and here's where I like. And so I think just to move the dialogue forward, it'd be interesting 
I think there's a lot of inter-religious dialogue instructive. It'd be interesting to compare and contrast these pathways in Christian theodicy with the kinds of approaches to the problem of evil that you find in world religions, and to note the, the similarities and differences. So I think um, to use this book as a starting point for inter-religious dialogue would be interesting, and also ecumenical dialogue. I think it'd be instructive to explore the similarities and differences in theodicy as they are conducted in different branches of Christianity, Protestant, Orthodox, and, and Catholic, and different denominations within Christianity to see how it plays out in different ways, what sort of resources are used, what sort of argumentation is used, and theorists. So I think inter-religious dialogue, ecumenical dialogue, I also think there's a, a largely untapped trajectory in theodicy as it relates to spirituality. How does one's explanation of evil and suffering in the world impact the task to cultivate the soul? Is there a connection? Can there be a connection between theodicy and spirituality? I think that would be interesting. Uh, I think more and more there's a growing awareness of the relationship between theodicy and ethics. You see that, I think, most strongly in anti-theodicy. And this pastoral dimension, that theodicy is not something that happens just in universalists, universities, just by professors and, and professionals, but something that pastors have to confront with people um, in everyday life and that people who aren't clergy wrestle with. And so I think to be attentive to the particularity of theodicies and to compare it with other religions, other denominations, and to see how it's being done on the ground, these are interesting ways, I think, of moving the dialogue forward. Well, excellent. And, um, we've already taken a lot of your time, but I, I'd like to prevail on you to take a little bit more time so we can ask the traditional question. Uh, what are you working on now? Sure. I just finished an article on Marilyn Robinson, and I, I did an essay called In Face of Mystery, In the Face of Mystery, Soteriological Sym Symbolism in Gilead and Poem. And this is, in an, this is in an interdisciplinary book on Marilyn Robinson called This Life, This World. So that just came out this month, actually. And it's a work in religion and literature, but I, I delve into Doctrine of Salvation or Soteriology and this idea of mystery I explore a bit. And then I'm working on two pieces on Terence Malick, Terence Malick, uh, his Tree of Life, and Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line. And so I have these two essays, one of which was based on a conference I went to in Germany this summer in religion, politics, and aesthetics in European and American movies. So I went to Wittenberg, Germany, and presented a paper on Terence Malick's The Tree of Life, the problem people in Terence Malick's The Tree of Life. And so that will eventually come out and then my essay on um, called Light in the Darkness, the Problem of Evil in Terrence Malick's Thin Red Line. That's coming out in a book on theology and Terrence Malick. So uh, Marilyn Robinson, Terrence Malick, and I think my next book length uh, treatment of a particular topic will be a book on the concept of mystery in Christian thought. So I tentatively entitled it God is Mystery, uh, or God of Wonders, Theology is Mystery. And so I'm working on that now in a preliminary way. So I'm delving into to the mists of mystery. That's where I'm headed next. Oh, excellent. Well, hopefully when you when that comes out, we can have you on again. Great. Yeah, I'd love to. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Mark, so much for writing this um, excellent book and for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate the time. All right. You have a great day. You too. Take care. 
This has been Franklin Rausch of Lander University of the Christian Studies Channel, the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come and listen again soon. Mm-hmm.